National media continues to exaggerate and promote misleading negative headlines designed to diminish the rule of law and those whose job it is to enforce it. Remember, the only people who want to defund the police and dismantle these agencies are the criminals. And don't forget to thank a cop. Now, let's start the show. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Our guests today are Hal Kempfer, former Marine Military Intelligence and CEO of Grip Intelligence, Grip Risk Intelligence Planning. Sorry about that. And Mike Vigil, who's former DEA Chief of International Operations. Good morning, gentlemen. Morning. How are you doing, Sherry? Doing great. Sherry, good morning. How are you? I'm okay. I I want to start with what's going on with the war in Israel. And I know we've had protests here in Tucson with a bunch of people getting arrested. Tell, Give us an update, Hal. What's going on over there? Well, the uh, fighting uh, began again yesterday. The uh, truce, uh, or so-called truce, had broken down. Uh, it, it lasted about a week. Uh, there had been a, a lot of exchange. Over 100 hostages had been uh, had been transferred back, uh, if you will, back to Israel. And uh, in exchange for, the, for every Israeli hostage that was released, there was three Palestinian prisoners or detainees that was exchanged. So it was a fairly uh, fairly busy period in terms of hostage exchange. But towards the end, Hamas, uh, the terrorist group, was having a tough time coming up with names. And it wasn't clear if they really had control of, of, of many of the hostages. And at the very end, uh, Hamas simply was not providing names of women and children that Israel knew were being held hostage. They just And that was a violation of the agreement. The other thing that's not being talked about quite as much is part of the agreement was the Red Cross, the International Red Cross, was supposed to be able to go in and visit uh, all the hostages. This is under international law. If you go to the Geneva Convention, uh, International Red Cross plays this role, and they had agreed that they would let the Red Cross visit them. That never occurred, from what I can tell, uh, throughout the entire process. So at the very end, Hamas simply did not perform, and the conditions of the truce, or the uh, pause were not being met, and it broke down. And then Hamas launched missiles before the at very end, about an hour or so before the end of the uh, period. Hamas launched missiles uh, into Israel, which pretty much killed the entire uh, arrangement. So they're back to war fighting. Yesterday, uh, Israel prosecuted about 400 targets uh, through various different strikes, mostly airstrikes. Uh, very aggressive movement throughout hitting the north, but also hitting some key car- targets in the south. And I, it, it, from what I can tell, you know, and, and this was something that we knew, that during the pause, Israel is going to use this and Hamas both to collect intelligence. And there would be a lot of intelligence they could collect by watching what was going on. And so they hit a lot of targets in the south. And my sense is that they had some very detailed target intelligence on what to hit. Now, Hamas is... Uh, Gaza Ministry of Health has immediately come out and said, oh, you know, they've killed over 100, I think like 170 people, and most of them are women and children. That tends to be their story every time, you know, uh, that, that anytime Israel does a strike or anything goes on, that most of them are women and children. And uh, there's never been any, you know, there's never been any anything other than the uh, Ministry of Health saying that, and that is an arm of Hamas. 
So they tend to skew those numbers. I, I couldn't tell you for sure how many were actually killed. And out of that, I could not tell you the percentage of women and children. But I can tell you that Hamas has a habitual history of, of grossly exaggerating all these numbers to make Israel look as bad as possible. So I'm a little skeptical, although I did see some stuff that looks like, yes, some children were, and, and maybe women, were collateral damage. Um, that's that's a term that's used for, you know, that means they were killed. But uh, um, but I don't think it was most, I would say, many, many, but not most. So that's kind of where the situation stands right now uh, in the Gaza Strip. I should mention uh, one thing that did not get as much news yesterday, but it was an interesting thing, was the Israeli consulate in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, what I understand is a lady came up, uh, wrapped herself in a uh, Palestinian flag, and set herself on fire. And, what did that uh, prove? Well, that's that's something you literally go back Left to... Left up uh, to interpretation? Viet- <laughs> well, it goes back to the Vietnam War. That was one of the things in uh, in South Vietnam was that Buddhist priests would sometimes uh, self-immolate themselves as a means of protest to the war. Um, and I think that's where she was probably taking this from. Who knows what her set, her mindset was on that. But it is rather interesting to see that form of protest. We had not seen that in a very, very long time, uh, that sort of thing. I don't know if that's going to be a... I, I don't know. Is that one-off, or, or are we going to see more things like that? Well, but, we uh, had we had protests here that, you know, people are yelling, free Palestine. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm like, okay, that means get rid of Hamas. Uh, That's the way know, I, I interpret it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> a rational human being would interpret it that way. You know, it's interesting, I, I and, 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 you know, we talked about this. I uh, did a big webinar this last week, and I kind of went into the history of Palestine. And uh, what is geographically the history of Palestine? You know, one time under the British mandate, Palestine was all the West Bank, Gaza Strip, all of Israel, and Jordan were all on the map as Palestine. And uh, so when you say free Palestine, it's like, really? You guys want to take over Jordan? Is that on your list? (laughs) What's the agenda? those, those, Those boundaries have moved back and forth over the years, and the, the the protesters, and I don't even know if a lot of them really understand what they're saying. They they probably think there is a Palestine somewhere, and there and there isn't there isn't a nation of Palestine. What there is is there has been since 1948 some sort of intent to uh, make the West Bank and maybe the Gaza Strip uh, a separate Palestinian state, uh, more or less. Uh, depending on which time you catch it in history, whether it's 48, 67, whatever, um, after these various conflicts have taken place. But uh, but they don't know. And then when they turn around, say, from the river to the sea, um, I would hope most realize what they're saying. What they're saying at that point is they're basically advocating genocide of of all the Jews in Israel. Because when you say from the river to the sea, you're talking about driving all of the – the Jewish population out of Israel, and that, and that also goes back. I mean, that's what the sixty, that's what the very seventy Yom Kippur War. You know, if you want to go back to what 
the Arab states are planning to do 67, right. uh, and certainly what they try to do in 48, that was their goal was to destroy the state of Israel. And, and so you still, you still see, in fact, this last week, I saw, uh, several places where not just Hamas, but others had, had again articulated that position that they see Israel as an artificial European colonial entity, um, uh, in, in the Middle East that it shouldn't be a nation state. And of course, that's the thing with Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And this is something I, I don't know that the, the body politic worldwide fully understands. Their their position is the destruction of Israel. There There is no, they're not the Palestinian Authority. There is no negotiating with them. Their their sole stated goal is the destruction of Israel. And, and hence, any negotiation with them is very, very difficult to say the least. Even the hostage uh, release negotiation was very difficult because you have this very radical group, which, you know, going they're going in position as they want to destroy the very entity that they're negotiating with. So it makes it very difficult. There's a lot of work to try and get this going, but Israel pulled its uh, negotiating team out of Doha, Qatar, uh, I think last night. They said, that's it, we're done. And... Uh, what about this deal that that uh, President Biden made with China? I'm, I'm switching gears here. He made a deal with sure, China, yeah. um, and I, I think Mike might have something to say about this too. About the they asking them to stop manufacturing the chemicals that are the opioids <laughs> with fentanyl. Fentanyl, fentanyl, yeah. So, well, I'll, 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 Mike, do you want to jump in on that? Sure. Here, here's the uh, the issue, Sherry. I applaud Joe Biden for trying to maintain communications with the Chinese government and trying to control the precursor chemicals from China flowing into the hands of the Mexican cartels. Now, you'll recall on May 1st of 2019, the Chinese government started to put all of the fentanyl and all of its analogs into its controlled substance list. Before that, it was plain whack-a-mole where they would put an analog into its controlled substance list. And then the chemical companies in China would change slightly the molecular structure of the analog and you know that then it would take the Chinese government a year to put that analog into its controlled substance list but they were able to do that but the problem is that in China you have thousands of pharmaceutical and chemical companies and the Chinese government don't have the adequate laws to be able to regulate them. Then the regulatory institutions that are charged with somewhat regulating them are very fragmented. So even if China wanted to control them, they're going to have a very, very difficult time. But let's say for argument's sake that China tomorrow stopped precursor chemicals, stopped producing fentanyl, that 
situation would immediately shift to India. So it's a very complex uh, situation. And I think that, you know, we here in the United States have to take a very, very hard look at this and look at creating a situation where we educate our youth, the public, and then also more treatment. But we, you know, one of the things that I advocate for is that we put, we need to put demand reduction at a very, very high priority, educate our children, put it into the school's curriculum, because we really need to reduce the demand if we're going to have any type of impact. And I'll tell you how easy it is to get fentanyl from China. Here a couple of years ago, I was called to do an interview with Chinese Global Television, and that dealt with fentanyl. So I went online and I said, well, let me see how easy it is for me to get uh, fentanyl. I go online, within five minutes, I find a Chinese pharmaceutical company where I can buy a kilo of pure fentanyl for $9,200. And they would ship it, mislabel it, and with that initial investment, (laughs) very small investment of $9,200, you know, I could probably make uh, $2 and $3 million selling that uh, fentanyl on the street. Wow. Wow, that's kind of scary. Yeah, if I could jump in, back in the '90s, uh, I was assigned to a. Um, it was a, 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 a kind of an FBI-led task force thing. Uh, but Mike, this is after I did a lot of work with the DEA. Just want to let you know. And uh, <laughs> but we were looking at Asian organized crime, and uh, you know, and when it came to you know, we kind of look at this and we go, you know, what's the difference between you know the uh, triads, the organized crime groups in China and the Chinese government? And of course, the answer was not much. They were pretty much, you know, you know, the corruption was so endemic in China that even if they, if the government does crack down, they have a very difficult time enforcing that, even within their own organization, because of the degree of corruption with various government officials. And that's not unique to China, but that does make a problem. I I was also going to, I just want to mention though, uh, strategically speaking. It's China's strategic goals are not in sync with this agreement. This is a tactical ploy. Uh, you know, as you go, oh, yeah, we'll stop fentanyl. Yeah, we'll try and cut back on that. Yeah, Reality, wink, wink. Yeah, they, they, they actually, they, they and, and North Korea, same thing. They want to undermine the West. And that's a little bit different than, say, the Mexican drug cartels, the Colombians. They just want to make a lot of money. Uh, with China, they actually have a broader thing, which is they look at a variety of asymmetric ways to undermine the West. So, you know, sending fentanyl to the U.S., you know, it, their view is, hey, if it's if it's destroying Western society, so then be let's it. Let's do it. Yeah. Don't really have a problem. The, the, yeah. the, the, the other thing, Sherry, is that, again, the cooperation by the Chinese government will all depend on the relationships at the moment between the United States and China. 
But traditionally, especially during the course of the past few years, China has stated that it's not a Chinese problem. It's a U.S. problem. Right. And if we had no buyers, we'd have no sellers. Exactly. And then the, the other situation also in Mexico is that the current president, which still has about a year in his sixth annual or in his six-year term, and when he came into power, he said that he was going to minimize the homicide rates that were taking place in Mexico, and he implemented a policy called abrazos y no balazos, which means hugs and not gunshots. So... That policy has been a total failure. He fails to recognize the fact that it's not working. And then this has caused the cartels to become even more powerful. And they operate with tremendous impunity. They don't care about the rule of law. And we see uh, uh, more and more homicides. This is probably going to be the bloodiest administration in the history of Mexico. And the cartels have become more powerful because now they've penetrated the avocado industry, which is a Uh $3.5 billion a year industry, citrus fruit, the same thing. They've penetrated the fishing industry. Mexico currently has seven petroleum refineries, and they have tapped into the pipelines and they're stealing about $1 billion worth of uh, petroleum each year. The issue with um, uh, migration or immigrants coming through Mexico has become a multi-billion dollar a year industry, Sherry. And now to handle these uh, migrants, the cartels actually use these plastic bracelets to you know, be able to readily identify them, uh, you know, know who's paid, who hasn't paid. So these cartels are now making uh, billions and billions of dollars, not only with drugs, but also through uh, the penetration of, uh, you know, legitimate businesses. And the most powerful one is the Sinaloa cartel that currently operates Mm -hmm. In six of the seven continents, they don't operate in Antarctica because as of yet, the penguins don't have any money to buy drugs. <laughs> there you so, go. <laughs> so, so they got to have somebody because they all look like they're formally dressed. I just want to point that out. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. They, they, yeah, they need the bow tie, though. But, but, but anyway, um, the cartels, you know, have gone, have started to move away from plant-based drugs and they're going into synthetic drugs, primarily methamphetamine and then also uh, uh, fentanyl, because through plant, if they use uh, plant-based drugs like uh, opium poppy that produces heroin or marijuana, there's a possibility that they could be, you know, fumigated, and then they'd have to wait until the next growing cycle. So they import the precursor chemicals from China. It comes in through the uh, ports of Lazaro Cárdenas in the state of Michoacán, the uh, port of Manzanillo in the uh, state of Colima on the Pacific side. But they also Mm -hmm. bring it in through the port of Veracruz on on, uh, 
on the on the Caribbean side. These chemicals are then transported either by railroad or by truck. Uh, you know, a, a lot of it goes into northern Sinaloa, you know, the, which is the stronghold of the Sinaloa cartel. And then I have to cringe when people say, oh, these super labs in Mexico, they're not super labs, because when they say that, you know, it conjures this image of, you know, being a pharmaceutical lab. The labs over there consist of a metal tub. Like a horse trough. (laughs) a A metal tub, and they mix the chemicals with shovels and sticks, and then they they, uh, mix them, uh, you know, they uh, powder form, and then they put them into a tableting machine. As you well Mm -hmm. know, when you buy illegal drugs, there's no quality control. So it costs them pennies to to make, uh, you know, a single tablet. You know, they do do, uh, counterfeit uh, tableting, you know, to make it look like Percocet, to make it look like, you know, uh, um, other drugs, you know, legitimate drugs. But uh, they're highly deadly because fentanyl is 50 times stronger than than heroin, 100 times stronger than than morphine. And the, the fact is that the two primary uh, cartels that that uh, manufacture and you know import fentanyl into the United States are the Sinaloa cartel, and then the ultra-violent cartel known as the uh, new, uh, the uh, Jalisco New Generation cartel, mm-hmm. which uh, operates like a paramilitary uh, unit. So you know we are are seeing more and more fentanyl pouring into the United States. Uh, The the, uh, Jalisco New Generation Cartel has targeted the rural areas, Sherry, which had been untapped markets because normally they've gone into the uh, uh, high-density metropolitan areas. But uh, this is a huge epidemic. It's very complicated. And I don't know that we are going to be able to resolve this situation in the near term. And where I have a severe problem is when I see politicians having town hall meetings and they come in, they talk about the problem, but they offer no solutions. Right. So we we need to get on the ball and we need to start doing something about this uh, horrific situation because we're losing about 70,000 uh, people, uh, you know, to just fentanyl uh, overdoses. You know, the last couple of years, we lost over 100,000 people to uh, drug mm-hmm. overdoses. And, and that is totally, totally unacceptable. Now, I think you're right about the education part. People, you know, I remember when I was little, it was always, you know, don't do this. And years ago, they they had a a fried egg and a frying pan saying, this is your brain on drugs. That was pretty powerful. Mm -hmm. But it just seemed like there is this shift. And once they made marijuana legal, and and people think marijuana isn't addictive when it is, uh, they made it legal. That's your your first stepping stone to destroying your life. And why do you want to do that? Well, the thing is that I remember when I came on the job, which was in the uh, early 1970s, I'm, I'm giving up my age. It was actually uh, about a week after uh, Christ resurrected Lazarus. But <laughs> anyway, 
uh, marijuana had a uh, 1%, about a 1% uh, active ingredient, which is known as tetrahydrocannabinol or THC, known by its acronym. And then um, within a few years, the, the uh, THC level started to climb. And now, you know, there are 30%. They can even exceed that because they, you know, genetically engineered the marijuana. So it's no longer uh, an innocuous drug. And I think a lot of people that use marijuana, not all of them, you know, but a lot of them will, you know, lose their fear for using other drugs, you know, yep. such as cocaine or, you know, other things that are, you know, more dangerous and, and uh, you know, highly addictive so uh, it's, it, it, it is a uh, problem, but we have never faced uh, a problem like uh, fentanyl ever. And this op- opioid crises that we're suffering today actually started with the pharmaceutical companies here in the United States back in the 1980s, like Purdue Pharma that you know, was uh, manufacturing uh, Oxycontin that led to a lot of deaths. Right. And then in 2010, it shifted to heroin because heroin was cheaper than buying these uh, pharmaceutical mm-hmm. drugs like OxyContin. But then in 2013, we started to see the worst situation when fentanyl came into being. And then the other uh, cartels, who are, you know, tremendous businessmen, you know, decided that that's what they were going to go into because it was much more profitable and much easier to make. They could get the precursor chemicals, not only from China, but, you know, uh, from uh, several other countries. And, um, you know, one of the things that I see happening is that, for example, the schools will have a law enforcement professional or somebody from, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, a health professional that will go in and talk to uh, to the kids, but that's like once a year. That's not going to cut it, and that's not why enough. we need that. You know, we need the education. We need the education because no matter what you do, you know, we're not going to be able to arrest our way out of this situation. We've got to deal with, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, demand reduction. We have to reduce the demand for drugs here in the United States. What if they close the border again? I, I heard that when the border was closed, we didn't have as many drugs coming over the border because they couldn't. Well, well, here here's the situation is that most of the drugs do come in uh, through the uh, legitimate ports of entry. The epicenter for fentanyl coming into the U.S. is San Diego, simply because it's the busiest land port of entry along the uh, 2,000-mile U.S. border. But even if they close down the uh, ports of entry, which you can't do simply because Mexico right now is the United States' largest trading partner. In January of this year, Mexico supplanted China as our largest trading partner. So if we're to diminish China's role in international commerce, you know, at least with the United States, it's going to have to be Mexico. So we, number one, we can't close down the border. But let's say we did, if you took a giant knife and you sliced 
across that 2,000-mile border, it would look like a block of Swiss cheese because it's riddled with tunnels. Uh-huh. And then, and then the other thing is that keep in mind that we have common border on the Pacific side, you know, and then also on the Gulf of Mexico where you know, they can bring in drugs, you know, by boat. They can fly it in. They can use drones. And the border wall, uh, you know, is a monument to ignorance because you can go to Lowe's. <laughs> and buy a reciprocating saw and cut through the bollards or the slats. And they do every day. Oh yeah. And and, yeah. and they and they do. So it it's a it's it's a it's a serious problem. And then, you know, it, you know, if 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 they had to shift someplace, they could also go to Canada and bring in it through the Canadian border. And they've been doing that so very, too. Very difficult, very difficult to um to be able to do that. So then, therefore, I go back to my uh, original argument of de- reducing the demand and educating our, our kid as, kids at a very early age. Yeah, and experimenting with drugs is not an excuse. Oh, they were just experimenting. No, 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 no. That's not an excuse. That's not good. So we're well, going to... Yeah, well... Go ahead. I was going yeah, well, to yeah, quickly you know. mention... Uh, yeah, um... Uh, you know, if you look at some of the cartels, you know, new generation, uh, certainly Los Santos, the other thing is they're tradecraft uh, in terms of paramilitary capability. Uh, if you look at what's going on down there with armored cars, uh, you know, in many cases, they, they far outgun, if I may use that phrase, uh, law enforcement in those areas, hence the use of the military, but then also the pervasive corruption within various parts of the military. Uh, has been a huge problem, hence the Mexican government has to rely on the Marines. Now, as a Marine, I would say, of course, you rely on the Marines because, you know, the Marines, obviously the best, right? <laughs> but uh, but actually, it's become this, uh, uh, as, it's become this rather unique service uh, in the war on drugs. But one of the things um, that Mike touched on is the, the permeability, the ability to get that, to get the stuff in. You know, a couple of things strategically. Um, Moving to fentanyl, diversifying, if you will, uh, the the drug supply, really changes the math. You know, uh, Mike remembers this. You know, back in the eighties and nineties, you know, with the with the cocaine uh, situation, I mean, it, cocaine came from one place. It was all down south. You know, there's a certain area of the Andes. It's the only place in the world they really grow it, coca, um, that they can bring it in. And so it was uh, more of a straightforward solution, which is block it from coming from the south. And we actually did that very successfully, uh, uh, more or less, on the east coast out of Florida. You know, that whole Miami Vice stuff, we actually blocked most of that, and hence it shifted west to the border. But the border is a very difficult problem. And one thing I want to just kind of hit on that, that Mike mentioned, drones. You know, we're seeing this in every everywhere we see it in ukraine we saw hamas using it to great effect in uh in in the gaza strip in southern israel the ability the availability to use drones to move stuff whether it's an explosive or drugs makes it uh, you know from a from a border protection standpoint or border um even from a, a domain awareness standpoint extremely difficult yeah. to do that. You don't even have to build a tunnel. You just have to get a drone 
And, you know, look at that. You know, we're talking about, you know, the, the value of a kilo of, of fentanyl. You know, how many kilos can I load on a small drone? I can put a few. And all you got to do is just fly that across the border, drop it off, fly it back, or not even worry about flying it back. Um, and that's with, with- really changed the map. You know, I've had the sheriff on from Cochise County, and he said before the drones, they were just catapulting it over the wall. Yeah, that works. Well, they, that works too. <laughs> well, well, they were catapulting uh, marijuana primarily, you know. But uh, the the uh, key is, uh, you know, the fact. Well, again, you know, like like Cal says, you know, it's very very difficult to control any. Uh, uh, border, especially the uh, U.S.-Mexico border, the cartels have been, you know, um, you know, have developed, you know, routes into the United States for decades and decades, and they're always looking for, you know, innovative uh, ways to 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 get it in. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and and Hell talked about, you know, the uh, shift of uh, cocaine from the Caribbean to Mexico. And you know that that happened in the uh, you know the seventies eighties, you know they started taking hits in the Caribbean, so they started looking at a, a different route. So they looked at Mexico because there was uh, cultural uh, issues uh, there that they could use, you know, namely the uh, the Spanish language, and then you had the uh, Mexican cartels that already had established up uh, um, uh, pipelines into the United States for heroin and marijuana. So they figure, okay, well, let's uh, you know have them use, uh, we'll have them, uh, we'll use their pipelines to get our cocaine into the United States, and they did that, you know, uh, in a very reliable manner. Now, to give you an idea of what's going on in uh, South America, especially Colombia, is that Colombia is now overproducing cocaine, and. The farmers, you know, can't even sell all of the cocaine that they're producing, which mm-hmm. is creating a humanitarian crisis in Colombia because these people, you know, and these farmers, you know, out in the middle of nowhere, you know, uh, rely on that to support their families and what have you. So a lot of them are starving. They're asking the government for for. Uh, you know, for uh, support, you know, for food and what have you. And the buyers are just not coming because, you know, know, there's way too much cocaine, so they're burying it, saving it for, uh, you know, a a much better day. But that has also caused, uh, you know, major problems. And I I think this would have been a good opportunity for Gustavo Pietro, the current president of Colombia, to take advantage of that and create a government presence in these areas to try to minimize cocaine production, but I don't think he's going to be able to do that. I was going to say, why don't they, why don't they, these farmers grow something that's useful? Well, well, they they, tried that. They, 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 they've tried that, but they're never going to make as much money from, you know, growing uh, coffee or growing uh, some legitimate crop as they do, you know, with uh, with uh, coca. So that is a major problem. But and then in 2016, the uh, the uh, the Colombian government signed a peace accord with the uh, the FARC, and the FARC uh, abandoned uh, some of the uh, drug routes 
from the uh, coca cultivation sites from southern Colombia going into Ecuador. So now you have a major problem in Ecuador where you have Albanian criminal groups, you have uh, the Sinaloa cartel, you have the Jalisco New Generation cartel, you have Ecuadorian organized crime trying to fill that void. So now um, Ecuador, that used to be a very peaceful country, is now awash in violence. And groups Mm -hmm. are trying to control the ports of uh, Esmeralda and then also Guayaquil to ship these uh, uh, loads of cocaine uh, up north. So it is, uh, it, it's a you know, very insidious problem, causing a lot of problems in, in Latin America, obviously uh, even more so here in the United States. So, you know, we really need as a country, as a whole, and I'm talking about, you know, federal government, state, local government, to come up with a national plan because, You know, a lot of times we as a country are more reactive than we are proactive. And, and, uh, you know, that that is not uh, not good leadership anywhere. No. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. These tunnels, I know years ago they talked about all the tunnels coming in from Mexico under the border. And, you know, I would tell people if you see people coming out of the house and nobody's going in the house, it's probably a tunnel. Why don't I know they've got some sophisticated uh, equipment where they can locate these tunnels. Why don't they just fill them with cement? Well, a lot of times they they, go ahead, Al. I was going to say, they, you know, that's uh, as someone who's worked a lot of ground sensors and stuff, and uh, and I and I do this part of a program under DHS where we work border security for other countries around the world, it's tough to do. Uh, as you saw, Israel and the Gaza Strip, they have about as sophisticated a network of ground sensors to try and find tunnels as any place on the planet. I mean, I don't know of any place that, you know, maybe maybe the DMZ in, in uh, Korea that has as many ground sensors set up to find these tunnels and all the observation stuff. And, and look at what Hamas is able to do literally right under their nose. That's a big challenge. The border is so big it's so large uh it's very difficult to do the train changes it's undulating there's a lot of areas that it's very difficult to do anything ground sensors are always tough because they are they're by definition unattended ground sensors and inevitably people go out there and find them and uh and compromise them so it's difficult to do so that's you know it's a challenge the one thing i was going to bring up though is years back we discovered that uh, the, some of the tunnels going into the U.S. looked a lot like the tunnels that were coming from Lebanon into uh, into Israel, and that's where we put together that they were getting uh, training assistance from Hezbollah. Kind of bring it back to the Middle East and, and the, the war. So, wow. here, here here's the uh, the situation also, you know, and I and I agree with Hell is that. You know, you know when when you look at the border, most of it is really uh, desert terrain. And I remember a, a lot of these uh, technology companies came up with probes to detect, you know, let's say uh, tunnels and what have you. But you know, they would get a ton of false readings because mm-hmm. of the shifting sand and what have you. So you know, it, 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 they, they were just unreliable. 
Secondly, a lot of the cartels are also tapping into underground uh, draining systems between the border, which saves them a lot of time because they're able to use those and, and go, you know, bring drugs into the United States. But the uh, the king of tunnels was always Chapo Usman. And Chapo Usman sent a lot of his people to Germany to some of the best mining schools in the uh, country. And he came. they came back and they would uh, build these tunnels. You know, they, they have, uh, you know, rail systems for cars. They have lighting. They have ventilation. Uh, and they a lot of uh, the tunnels... Uh, are found primarily in Arizona and then also California. When you look at Ote Mesa on the the uh, on the U.S. side, they have a lot of warehouses, uh, Sherry. So what they do is they build tunnels and they go into these warehouses, and uh, you know which are controlled by cartel members. They load up the uh, the vehicles, and uh, you know they they can ship these drugs uh, throughout the United States. And, and then take a look at the Chapo's Mons escape yeah. from the most maximum secure <laughs> penitentiary in Mexico, near Mexico City, Altiplano, where when he was arrested, they immediately started building a mile-long tunnel. They built a little cinder block uh, residence to kind of hide their tunnel digging activities. So that is how Chapo Usman made his escape. And I'm sure that they use this uh, equipment called Total Station, which is kind of it's surveying equipment, but it uses lasers and a prism to basically take into consideration the curvature of the earth. They, they have, actually have to have the, floor, the plans of the prison and, uh, you know, where the rebar was, where, you know, sensors were and all of that. But they were able to build a tunnel right into Chapo Guzman's cell and then knock out a 20-inch by 20-inch uh, hole. And the prison guards heard all the banging. The, the inmates were screaming because of all the noise. But uh, they gave Chapo Guzman uh, 30, uh, 32 minutes to uh, make his escape. Yeah, and they didn't do anything about stopping it. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? I'm shocked. Well, <laughs> well I'm sure a lot of money uh, went into a lot of in Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> I am surprised. I want to talk about the the Mexican mafia stabbing uh, Derek Shaven in in all this news that just came out this past week. First. They let the media know, and it was blasted from coast to coast, that he was stabbed, but they never notified his family or his attorney before they did that. What is the protocol, either of you, what is the protocol if something like this happens? Shouldn't the family be notified first? That That is the uh, the protocol. And, uh, you know, they, they have to no, notify the, uh, the families. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, it's... Uh, what I would consider to be a humanitarian gesture. But the Bureau of Prisons has been under a lot of uh, scrutiny, under a lot of uh, political attack because of the fact that they haven't been able to provide safety and security to inmates 
Uh, a lot of issues have been taking place. For example, the uh, the suicide of uh, Jeffrey uh, Epstein. You know, you take a look at Ted Kaczynski that also uh, committed uh, suicide in prison. Uh, there have been uh, attacks, for example, uh, when uh, Jeffrey Dahmer went to prison. You know, he was attacked and uh, killed by uh, another inmate. And so a lot of times it, it deals with, you know, uh, uh, protocols, but it, it also deals with the fact that in a lot of penitentiaries, there's not, you know, adequate uh, personnel. Uh, you know, they, you know, have not been able to really get this thing under control, even they, though they put uh, different people in as, in charge of the Bureau of Prisons. And the Bureau of Prisons, Sherry, is, a, is the largest law enforcement agency under the Department of Justice. They've got about 50,000 employees. And uh, they handle, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, a lot of uh, prisons. But this, this is a this is a major problem. Aren't so, some of them privately run? Yes, yes. But the federal yes, prison shouldn't be privately but, but, run. But they, but, but they still <laughs> fall under the auspices and control of the Bureau of Prisons. But for example. When you have a high-profile prisoner, for example, like Chauvin, uh, that killed uh, George Floyd, uh, you know, you're going to get other prisoners that are going to go after them because, you know, they look at it like, you know, they're going to become famous, they're going to gain fame by killing, you know, somebody like Chauvin. So in this case, you had a guy by the name of uh, uh, John uh, Torsak, who was a former Mexican mafia member, uh, he um, was a, uh, a high-ranking member, and you know he ordered the, the deaths of uh, people, the assaults of people, and he was in the uh, uh, penitentiary there in Tucson, Arizona, the federal cor- correction uh, inst- institution. So he said that he admitted that he had been planning uh, to do something to Chauvin for about a month and then decided to do it the day after Thanksgiving, uh, you know, uh, Black Friday to, you know, like symbolize uh, Black Lives Matter and then also the uh, black hand that the uh, Mexican mafia uses. But, uh, you know, the Mexican mafia do not work well with African-Americans. And as you know, George Floyd was African-American. So, you know, that uh, to me was An you know, a, a, lie, a, a lie on the part of this uh, former uh, gang member. You know, I, I, he wanted the fame, but, uh, you know, they should have never put Chauvin into the general population. He was attacked at a law library at the... Uh, correctional facility there in uh, Tucson, stabbed 22 times. So you don't and think that the Mexican mafia ordered this this attack? This was a rogue person who decided to become famous for doing something on his own? Yeah, that, that, no, the Mexican mafia had no reason to to uh, attack him. Like I said, they, they they've never worked well with, uh, with, uh, with black uh, Gangs, they, they work more with uh, the Aryan Brotherhood, you know, these white supremacist groups. 
right. I, I think this was, uh, you know, solely uh, motivated by uh, the, uh, the former uh, gang member, who, by the way, was also an informant for the FBI. You know, he was cooperating, um, giving giving information to the FBI on the uh, the Mexican mafia, but at the same time committing crimes, assaults, extortion, things of that nature. So uh, now he's being charged with uh, attempted murder, assault, and he's been serving a, a 30-year uh, prison sentence. So that I think uh, he'll probably uh, end up uh, dying in uh, prison, which uh, he uh, deserves. Yeah, I I wasn't sure about the FBI informant. Was was that before he went into prison, or is that while he was in prison? I I don't understand where that no, portion. That was, that, yeah, that yeah, that was uh, before uh, prison, and uh, you know he did a lot of cases, but uh, uh, again, you know that that uh, was uh, overshadowed by on the crimes that he was committing while working as an informant. But a lot of a lot of informants do that, Sherry. You know, they they play both sides, or what you know, you, we would call double agents. Right. You know, they work they work for law enforcement, but at the same time, you know, they're out committing uh, criminal acts, which are not condoned by law enforcement. But you know, we don't uh, stay with them twenty four seven. So, so they're on their own. You have to well, kind of depend and, and take take into consideration where they're coming from when they give you information. <laughs> it's an important thing is that yeah well, you know you know we use uh, you know criminals because you know they're in you know they're into that criminal element you're not going to be able to use a catholic priest because you know they you know they they have no clue of what's going on with these uh, criminal you know these organized crime groups true true that yeah so what are we going to do to solve the drug issue how do we convince this country to teach their kids don't do it simple as that just don't do it i think that you know number one you know we need public awareness and this has got to be a national program because there's a lot of people that have no clue of what fentanyl is uh, you mm-hmm. know, the the only thing that they have a basic understanding of is, uh, you know, one of these television programs where you see a SWAT truck roll up uh, in front of a house, everybody jumps out, throws everybody on the floor, and then you have uh, uh, one of the officers come in from the back bedroom with a little baggie of uh, marijuana, and he tells his boss, uh, hey, boss, you know, we hit the mother load. <laughs> well, <laughs> you, you know, people, people need to understand that there's cartels out there that can move 12, 15 tons of cocaine at, at a time. The drugs that they produce and, and they import into the United States are massive. We, we need to educate them on, you know, how to monitor kids, you know, because a lot of the uh, drug trafficking organizations, and I'm sure Hell will agree with me, are using the Internet. Not so much yes. uh, street dealers. Now they use the Internet. They use emojis. And and uh, parents, uh, you know, really need to make sure that they know what their kids are doing. Uh, and and uh, Educate you know, also, yourself. Uh, there are dictionaries and, online and, and, about and, what these and, emojis mean. And, and educate them. But 
but you know the schools you know need to play uh, you know you know a huge a, a, a primary role because a lot of times in today's economy you have both parents that are working you know they get home tired the mother's got to prepare dinner so they mm-hmm. really don't spend as much time as they would like with their children so that's one thing then we need to you know do more treatment we need more treatment facilities because there's uh, towns, there's areas where they don't have treatment facilities, and these uh, people that are addicted to drugs are not going to travel 100 miles, 200 miles to get to a treatment facility. Then the treatment facilities need to not only detox them, but also follow up, because most treatment facilities today, you know, they detox these people, then they go back to the same neighborhoods, the same people that got them addicted, and they get addicted within a week or two. Yeah, they're that's bad. That's not going to work. We, we also need to do uh, harm reduction because the cartels now are mixing fentanyl with other drugs such as heroin, methamphetamine, cocaine, marijuana, and what have you. So the drug user does not necessarily know that they are consuming fentanyl. So we need to distribute, uh, for example, uh, test strips where they can test their drug of choice to make sure it doesn't have fentanyl in it. That will save lives. The other thing is widespread distribution of Narcan or Naloxone, which reverses uh, opioid uh, overdoses to include synthetic opioids like fentanyl. So there's a lot that we can do, but we need to do them. You know, it's not good enough to discuss the problem. We need solutions. We need actions. And uh, I'm not uh, a big proponent of the U.S. Congress because they do nothing. And, uh, you know, we need to get something done. It's so true. They've done nothing. That's because they're being paid not to. So, yeah. and, 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 you know, the, 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 uh, the, the problem is that if we don't get those things done, uh, this uh, issue is going to get uh, far worse. And then you know, I, I think that the fourth base, you know, we talked about the, you know, the uh, pharmaceutical companies and the shift to heroin and then the shift to, uh, to uh, fentanyl. And then now I I think what I would consider to be the fourth phase of this uh, opioid crisis is the mixture of other things, uh, deadly things, uh, with fentanyl like xylazine, which is the Mm -hmm. uh, animal tranquilizer that, you know, it's uh, used for uh, veterinarians to sedate, sedate, uh, you know, horses and animals. And now they're using it in fentanyl which causes necrosis of the skin, and that, 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 that's why they call it the zombie drug, because a lot of times it leads to uh, amputation. Okay, we, we want to thank both of you for coming on and bringing us up to date and solving the world problems, if people would just listen. <laughs> and <laughs> until next week, everybody shop local, stay safe, and thank you again for coming on the show. Talk to you soon. Hey, thank you, Sherry. All right, bye-bye.